days after the massacre before there was any Israeli response. There were masses of crowds across the world, you know, near me in Sydney, supporting the Palestinians against Israel with the only piece of information that one and a half thousand Jews, Jewish civilians, had been massacred. Everything you need to know is in that moment. Welcome to the New Flesh Podcast, the podcast you deserve. My name is Ricky Allpike, and joining me is someone who has absolutely no knowledge or skills about the Middle East, Mr. Jonathan Astro. John, how are you? I'm very good, and I can't, I can't, I can't argue with that. I'm frightened by what I don't know. Do you know what I mean? Like it's, um, it's, uh, there's so much about that region that I have no knowledge of. I'm embarrassed. People bring it up, and I just hope that they're going to talk about john wayne westerns instead i can talk about that so you don't feel you don't feel the need just to side with 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 one group based on the color of their skin perhaps or <laughs> i don't know like 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 just try try to judge in 10 seconds who's the most oppressed and then go with them yeah well look it's you know it's it's a tricky game isn't it um look i just want to maybe it's like sport you want to pick a winner you know so ah uh, yes who's gonna win go with that because I support a lot of losing sporting teams, so like sporting teams, you know what I mean? Like, so, so who's who's going to win, Israel or Hamas? <laughs> I don't know. Come on, I don't know. Look and, and look, dear listener, <laughs> let's just get this straight. We we are jesting, but it's such an awful thing, isn't it? Like, it's so awful oh, yeah. that yep. well, what can you do except except? Well, I've I've had to stop stop looking looking on on Twitter on on social media because it's it's too much. I know it's dreadful, and Matthew Perry's dead. I know that was just like an added added blow. Bummer, hey? Was a bummer. Yeah. 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 He went out in a bad way, I think. Yeah. No, it is. It's it's really sad. So I I know I shouldn't juxtapose um, uh, Israel <laughs> Gaza with Matthew Perry. <laughs> Will that get us in trouble? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe can can't I feel all hurt? Can I feel the hurt of everyone involved? Guess so. Like the people yeah. in Gaza and people who. Died in a jacuzzi. Yeah, and and all the Friends fans out there. Yes, well, that's, that's I'm a Friends fan, so um, you know, if, actually, if you are interested in Friends, do listen to Saul Austerlitz a few uh, episodes back. We talked about Friends. So if you're going through, if you're doing your uh, you know Matthew Perry vigil, then give that a listen and and go deep and get back to us. But today, don't engage in that frivolous shit. Okay. Get, get serious while we talk to Misha Saul. Well, we need your help here at The New Flash. We need you to leave us a rating or review wherever you listen to the show. Please follow us on X and Instagram. We're also on YouTube. So please subscribe to our YouTube channel and leave a comment about the show you liked or perhaps one that you didn't. Also, word of mouth is a very powerful tool. So please tell all of your friends. And finally, to our Uber fans, if you love what we do, you can send us a little cash via the Buy Me A Coffee platform. Any donation here is very much appreciated. And now on with the show. Right. Can I just do a quick shout out to... One of our Twitter followers, Hilly, Go. Hilly at uh, Hilmar's daughter. <laughs> uh, a, Do you need to spell that? Uh, well, it's you know that's just how it comes out. You know, um, uh, we see you and uh, thank you, thank you for thank you for everything that you that you do. Misha Saul is an investor by day and an intrepid substacker by night. On his substack, Kvetch, he covers a broad array of topics from history, culture, and ruminations on movies, TV, and the Talmud. 
He's a provocative thinker, and we're delighted to have him here today to talk about his work, his life, and perhaps some of his reactions to the fraught moment we are in right now. Misha, welcome to The New Flesh. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Love your podcast. <laughs> Thank you. Now, we, we first met at a, at a gathering here in Sydney, uh, All Minus One, uh, which is a free speech discussion group run by Dara McDonald, who's coming back on the show in a couple of weeks, by the way, uh, dear listener. Uh, I have a feeling um, today, Misha, that uh, we will bounce around a few different topics, uh, things you've written about in your sub and whatever else comes up, you know, we want it to be organic. But we'd also like to get your thoughts and reactions uh, about the recent terror attack in, in, in Israel and the subsequent fallout. But first, I have a question, a, a serious question. Have you ever experienced any discrimination because you grew up in Adelaide? Um, great question. It's, 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 a, it's a haunting um, background that I, I try to hide here in Sydney. Uh, no, no, obviously I try to hide it. Look, I, um, uh, Adelaide, you know, Adelaide is... I think a good place to 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 grow up. I think it's very hard to trust people. I think when they tell you how it is to grow up in a place, because um, you know, uh, to a worm in horseradish, the whole world is horseradish. And what I mean by that is like you know, your childhood is so immersed in the very particular circumstances of your family. It's really hard to generalize. And mm. so um, I think Adelaide's objectively a beautiful place and affordable, et cetera. And if you can earn good money, you know, you started a business or offshore or whatever, um, you know, ha happy days. And um, But, you know, it is culturally quite distinct from the rest of Australia. Um, and, you know, um, you know, I, I, I don't find childhood there. I, I definitely feel, um, you know, like a city sider now. But that's interesting because Ricky and I, I was just excited because, you know, Ricky and I, we talked to a lot of people from, you know, uh, London, New York and all that. And I was, you know, and I met you and, and, you know, you're really erudite and everything, but I was excited to find out that you have Adelaide roots because we sort of, in the hierarchy of Australia, Perth is just maybe a notch above, I think. <laughs> so I didn't want to, oh, I think it is. Yeah. My brother-in-law's from Adelaide. He knows. He gets it. They got snow uh down. And all that there, you know. So yeah, Adelaide's kind of bifurcated between like um, you know, like real slum crim. Like there's just this grim kind of reputation for all these gnarly murders and stuff. And Snowtown, then, yeah, or, or Snowtown. You know, I know the judge who literally, you know, like um, ruled over that case, etc. Really. So, like, yeah, yeah. So there's that piece, and then there's like, um, but then it's also a bit snobby, you know. It was like it's very English. It's disproportionately English. It was kind of settled, not, um, you know, it wasn't a colony, you know. And so, so, so its kind of background is super interesting in terms of how it um, kind of emerged into a little bit more English, a little bit more, you know. It, it was very early in getting the, the vote and enfranchisement in in a range of things because it, it was a disproportionately educated. Um, state, you know, quite early on, and so it's this it's this weird mishmash of like low cream and you know hollowed out industrial base, and like um, and then kind of this snobby English semi, um, you know, not aristocratic, but like more snobbish kind of populace. Oh, is that why they say dance? Yeah, so we say dance and grass and graph and all that kind of stuff. Dear so. listener, this is airs and graces, okay? We That's exactly right. no good. <laughs> but seriously, maybe we should talk a little bit about your background. Can you maybe give us some of your, you know, zip through some of your backstory from 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 Adelaide and and to to, to now? 
Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I was born in Georgia, in as in you know Soviet Union Georgia, um, in Tbilisi, the capital of Georgia, which is very close, um, actually by mileage, certainly by Australian standards, to the pogroms that have happened over the last twenty four months in Dagestan. Um, sorry, not twenty four hours, not oh, months. Th- that um, literally just happened today. Like, like That's literally a today thing. Sorry, yeah, I didn't mean 24 months. Um, that literally happened today. It's kind of been emerging as, as it's happened. And, and that's, you know, um, around the corner, basically, from, from Georgia. Georgia itself is a, um, you know, is a very ancient kind of host of, you know, a wide range of populations from Jewish to, to Muslim. And, and pretty much, despite being a very kind of fervently Christian Orthodox country, has a very solid history of, um, you know, basically being warm to, to, to all its inhabitants for a range of reasons. Um, but anyway, so I was born there and as a family, Soviet Union kind of broke up and, and um, you know, I was, I was a young, young boy and, and my family and I, we, uh, we moved to Australia and, and to Adelaide where we had some family there already. My uncle, who we followed, who we call the, the Moses of the family, kind of led his people out of the Soviet Union. Um, he, um, he chose Adelaide, he tells us, because it was kind of a, a nice size, but he chose Australia, not the US or, or Israel, because he wants to get as far away as possible from the threat of nuclear holocaust. It was, it was like kind of just, you know, it was, he left in like 78 or something. And so, you know, this was kind of, you know, real Cold War stuff. So Australia felt like as far away from, from the two bozos as he saw it as possible. Oh, and so so background. So then, obviously, in Adelaide, kind of studied there, uni there, moved to Sydney, worked. That's kind of it. Well, John, John, and I we were talking about the image on your Substack banner earlier uh, yeah. earlier this evening, and it's it's Eddie Murphy from Coming to America. His his character that he plays, the, the Jewish character in the in the barbershop. Are you an Eddie Murphy fan? Well, you can't not be an Eddie Murphy fan. And, um, you know, one of my most popular substacks is, you know, why did comedy die? Um, And, you know, coming to America has to be one of the greatest kind of comedies of of all time. And, um, and, um, and I love that character i thought this i thought the the that particular character is kind of perfect because it's kind of it's jewish but he's, he's obviously not jewish it's a black guy right and so there's just like but he you know plays a great kind of character and so there's just these these weird layers to the to to, to the kind of banner which i thought kind of you know but we were talking like about t- this t- you, you, we need your help on this because because i said you know we, we complain about how you're not nowadays you're not allowed to you know you got to stay in your lane you're not allowed to but you can't have a black guy playing a jewish guy you can't do or whatever and then i was i was railing and saying oh it's it's just meant to be an illusion and you know it's meant to be um you know someone's just got a knack for 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 bundling up uh you know uh, you know truths or things that seem like truths and and we we respond to them and then and and i was like you know and then he's got it and then ricky rightly said he goes yeah but is that because you and i just don't know anything about jewish people and we're saying oh he's nailed it he's nailed (laughs) it he's got it it. he's got it like he's got it i mean what's what's your read on on eddie's um Eddie's take. Well, um, you know, it, it's partly just a different era. Like we regressed in a lot of ways. Um, you know, like like back then. I mean, he he said, you know, in his stand-ups, he had all these gay jokes and stuff, which which probably haven't aged um, as well. You know, I think that character's kind of aged fine. But you know, a brave comedian today kind of goes out and 
takes the mickey, you know, in, in the way he did probably. It's probably tough um, and you know, that's a bit sad. Um, you know, I, I, and so, I mean, I just think we, we live in a much more sensitive moment um whether um whether that's un- uniform across media and whether um you know there are pockets where that's not the case is kind of in- interesting question but but yeah like certainly there's just this um golden era probably through um you know probably through the 90s maybe early 2000s of, of comedy in my view and it's easy to say that because that's when we kind of grew up so everything's kind of always ro- rose colored but i think even um empirically it's kind of made out where we just make far fewer comedy certainly in film M- maybe if you kind of start bundling in other media like youtube and and um and tv it, the story changes but certainly film has changed dramatically and you know the the kind of steve martins and the, the eddie murphy's and the um you know richard pryor from an early era or certainly like the whole um mel brooks thing is just like impossible to 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 imagine today oh and we talk, we talk about this a lot as well um the zucker zucker brothers so jim uh, abrams and zucker from you know flying high naked gun all of that they famously said that that um yeah, well, flying high or airplane as it is in America uh, wouldn't uh, just would not be made. But I'm thinking about all the the the, the completely well, problematic stuff now, which is you know we've got that woman who can speak jive. Do you remember that? There's that great, oh yeah, that great scene. <laughs> There's so much good stuff in it. Or what about the guy? What about this? You never get these jokes anymore, and it's just tough because we're all family men. But at the same time, they're, they're just the, the the wistful way the pilot of the front says, "Hey, Timmy, the little kid." He's like, you know, you ever? What do you think about like Turkish baths and stuff like that? You know, like all the. <laughs> remember him just like being a total creeper. Uh, good stuff. But uh, now none of us got, none of we can't do any of this. Yeah, and and look, um, you know. It's yeah, it, it, it's it's hard to be uh, definitive, and, and maybe again, you know, like there's definitely different time types of of, of comedy now, and um, you know, it's a question of like economic forces versus cultural. Like, you know, it's hard to make those movies because you know a lot a lot more movies are made for offshore markets, like in particular the Chinese market, and that just doesn't seem to translate as well. And so that's kind of understandable. Versus um, you know, uh, you know, a, a shift in you know, Western sensibilities, say. So, um, and, and and maybe media, you know, maybe people are getting their laughs off YouTube or, or whatever. It's, it's, it's always hard to be, you know, too definitive about that. Mm. Yeah, I definitely feel like the, the golden era of the comedy movie is has passed and, and maybe peaked in the late 90s, you know, uh, which is a shame because I, I love all those movies. But I wanted to ask you a bit more about your Substack. You you, you cover lots of different topics and lots of areas, which, which is, is really great. And... Uh, it's got a great title too, Kvetch. Uh, what's your what's your ultimate goal with it? Great question. So um, there is like no physical way readers can send me money today, um, and and that's um, you know partly by design. I think um, you know I've I've got a uh, you know I've got a career and and, and a full time job as an investor, and that's obviously um, my focus. But for um, you know, for over a decade, I, I've been writing, you know, basically as, as my entire adult life, I've been kind of writing for myself and kind of occasionally sharing bits and bobs. And so finally, I've kind of found a medium where I can kind of um, share it in a more structured way. Um, it's called Kvetch, which is Yiddish for like having a whinge, basically. And that's kind of deliberate. Like it, it is kind of um, not to be taken too seriously. And it's, um, you know, it's not... Um, 
too focused as you know i think the polite way to say it's, it's kind of eclectic but like um you know it's really whatever I happen to be reading or or thinking about um at, at the time and so um i've kind of hit a cadence where i've been writing for a long time got a backlog of pieces and so i kind of release you know as as i kind of feel like it basically and um i've been fortunate enough to get a few thousand um you know readers um with whom it it, it resonates um and uh, you know and so i've been able to kind of forge you know this delightful bond and, and share things that i'm interested in with people who actually care like that, that's kind of the end of it like before i'd kind of send random things to a few of my mates and they'd be like oh yeah that's cool misha you're a bit random but whatever uh and now um you know there's this kind of like the beauty of the internet is you can kind of set this flag um, and you know this light to attract like-minded folks, and and if they're into it, that's great. And if they're not, that's totally fair enough. It's pretty. You know, some of it's pretty niche, and and and, and you know, it, it's got to be you know your kind of thing. And if it's not, that's fine. Now you, you seem to have your finger on the pulse of the of the cultural zeitgeist. Do you, do you think that informs your your job as an investor? Good question. Um, and thank you. I'm not sure if I have the finger on the pulse of the cultural zeitgeist. Like I've certainly got a view. Um, I suspect I'm like deeply out of touch with um, with most people. Like I reckon, you know, I'd be a bad politician, for example, um, for that reason. But you know, I've got my finger on something. I don't know what it is. Um, but um, look, I think it'd be massively self-serving to say it helps. I think the reality is I read a lot because I love it. Um, I reckon most investors read almost nothing and there, and there are many of them who are great investors. So um, I'd like to spin you a story about how brilliant I am and how there's this end game of being this fantastic investor and, everything, and there's this kind of, um, you know, uh, united theory of everything where my reading and my investing just makes me better at both, whatever. And I just think that's probably kind of fake. I think, um, you know, I think everyone's got a different kind of path and capability and um, you know, they can be good and bad at their jobs, and they can be good and bad at writing. And sometimes there's a you know big cross section, and sometimes there's not. Well, do do you get any? You just mentioned your your uh, your day job uh, as an investor. Do you get any feedback or, or reactions from either the people you work with or people you come into contact with from that sphere? sphere? Because your your pieces are thoughtful and well reasoned, uh, absolutely. However, they are very provocative. Um, and I'm, and I, I can say that objectively because you know we we do this podcast, we do a lot of reading in in dangerous spaces, and there's a couple of pieces that we want to talk about that, you know, you've smashed two, you've smashed two um, things together uh, in in one particular one later on, uh, um, uh, sort of the in, the idea of indigenous sovereignty and and Zionism, for example. I feel like those two topics on their own are pretty radioactive, and you've put them together, uh, and that's just an example of one of the one of the pieces I'm talking about. Now, so I'm interested to know about any crossover in in into in your from your 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 real life to your your writing life. It's a great question. Um, look, everything you know what. On social media generally, I think the risk is you say something just off the cuff and it blows up in your face and, um, you know, uh, things are not good. Um, I see Kvetch as the opposite where, you know, often these pieces are thousands of words long and, um, and you know, you're astute to note they can be provocative because I think they can be. Um, but, you know, I have to, I am careful about every sentence, not 
careful to hide what I mean, but careful that I can stand behind it and hand on heart, you know, say that's something that, um, you know, I think is at least defensible. Um, um, and, you know, I think the truth is most people don't read. I think it's the, re- the reality is I think even if someone didn't like me, or didn't like the piece, they're probably not careful enough to actually or smart enough to just extract it in a way that's painful. I think that's actually surprisingly difficult to do from a long-form piece. You've got to put in a lot of time and hours and brain cells to actually um, do that. And by the time you've done that, like you're probably you can probably see my point of view. Like to be honest, they're, they're, they're hopefully they're kind of thoughtful. Um, and 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 if you disagree, I can actually disagree. Uh, you know, I welcome that. Like this isn't the word of God. This is just kind of my view. But hopefully, it's kind of um, defensible. So I think they are provocative. But actually, I think I think it's very different to um, a tweet that's kind of um, spicy, which is easy to to extract. So I think structurally, it's very difficult. To to um, for this to be radioactive, I think. Um, um, and so, so, so I guess just that, that that's kind of point one, and then point two. As I kind of said, I think like most of it isn't political. Some of it, as you know, does kind of touch on on political things. But you know, at the end of the day, um, you know, I there, you know, you can go through this life at, you know anonymously as a kind of corporate drone and focus on. Um, you know, on um, exclusively on being bland and, and, and a careerist, or you can just kind of lean into um, what what you believe, and you, and you better be careful with that. But like, I, you know, I, there's not there's no going getting away from, and I, I wouldn't want to get away from the fact that I'm a Jew, and I'm very comfortable with being a Zionist. You know, that that might be um, a spicy thing to say in some circles, but like those circles are retarded and, you know, and, 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 you know, and, and I wouldn't care to be a part of them anyway. So, you know, there are just lines that I'm comfortable to, to draw. And so, um, you know, so, so that's, it hasn't affected, uh, work at all. In fact, on balance, um, there are folks with whom my presence resonates and they read my stuff and they reach out and they tell me, wow, I, I appreciate that. Now I, there's a selection effect going on there. I don't see the folks who go, I don't want this to be anywhere near this bloke. Um, like th- that's true. But to be honest, that's a selection. Of, that's also a selection of effect that's positive for me. You know, I am kind of reaching out to my people, so to speak. And and look, and again, that's not saying um, you can't disagree, whatever. You know, I think you'd be a total loon to kind of agree with everything um, I, I write about. And the point isn't to agree with it. The point is to kind of put forward um, a point of view. Before we move on, I, I'm interested in this point because, uh, you know, do you think it's it's something about um, the kind the, the the nature of investing and the type of you know backgrounds and the type of people that are, are drawn to that sector? Because I mean, I I could take a couple of your pieces and give them to some people I know in in cultural sector in the cultural sector or writing or who you know work at you know, uh, uh, funding bodies or the ABC or whatever. And I think it would implode the building. Like, you know, yeah, like yeah. I just, I could slip it under the door and it would be, it would be game over. So, um, you know, I am, I don't think there's anything about what I do that, that informs that. I just think I'm so divorced from that universe. Like, you know, there is no crossover between the world I inhabit um, in my corporate life. It's not that it's antithetical to that or it's just totally independent. Um, you know, I'm certain there are colleagues and people I work with in France who, who you know, yeah, 
ABC would be like, you know, 70% of their worldview or something. And, and, and that's fine. You know, I wouldn't even know, to be honest. Um, it's just, it's just not something that's really relevant. Um, so I don't think it's the work thing, although, except that it happens to be one sphere of the world that's totally divorced from the kind of short haired burn the, you know, world and return it to Aboriginal people from like, you know, um, you know, from Collingwood or whatever, like, um, you know, so I, I just think that um, there's a great cultural group think and a very specific milieu that's kind of intensified over time within those institutions and within certain other groups um, that, you know, you can see is happening. I don't have great visibility. I feel like a lot of it's kind of snuck up on me, um, you know, while I've been working for, for 10 or 15 years, it's kind of got worse since I was at, I was at uni. Um, and at the same time, I've just formed my own views um, independently. I'm, I'm not saying I'm kind of, you know, this genius, you know, thing, you know, guy who's kind of, it's just, I just happen to not have that much contact with those folks. I happen to read a, a different kind of set of stuff and form my views differently. And I formed conviction on certain um, perspectives that are absolutely antithetical to um, that crowd. But that's not by design. It just happens to be that I think they're deeply wrong. Well, I think we should probably uh, move on and ch- and chat about uh, some of the events that, that happened around October 7 in Israel. Both both John and I, we know next to nothing about the history of Israel and the ongoing conflict between Israel and Palestine. We're, we're going to put that out there straight away. We grew up in Perth and we get all of our Jewish knowledge from American TV and film, mostly Seinfeld, Larry David and Woody Allen films. But we want to go as, d- as deep as we can on the issue. But but first, maybe you can tell us your initial thoughts on the October 7 terrorist attack. W- where were you when you first heard heard about it? Well, before, so in Perth, there's, a, there's quite a big and prominent, not big, but, you know, a concentrated South African Jewish community. Have you, have you kind of come South across Africans, them? Not really. Absolutely. Like, when yeah. I think, like, like, when I think of Perth, like, there are so many South Africans, like, there, yes. I grew up with them. So, but I, but I wouldn't have known in my formative years that they would do, they never talked about being Jewish. You know what I mean? Sure. Like, it never, but, yeah. but South Africans, oh my God. And like, of them probably are, like, yeah, so. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Okay, cool. So, yeah. So, you got some interaction. So, look, um, uh, you know, there's a ton of stuff out there. So, you know, I, I don't, you know, I've got, I've certainly got a relatively, um, uh, you know, interested and, and deep uh, understanding of kind of history of Israel or whatever. I, I'm obviously Jewish. I'm obviously a Zionist. So, you know, I'm putting my cards on the table so folks aren't, aren't surprised um, with my views. Um, but I, I guess, you know, look, you know, when you say where, where was I on October 7, you know, I guess um, these things, kind of slowly evolved. There was some weird stuff on Twitter going on at the time. Oh, you know, there are a bunch of random Palestinians in, in southern Israel and maybe they're doing some bad things. And and only, to be honest, only over the following week did the kind of magnitude of it um, fully emerge. Although within maybe 48 hours, it was clear that um, there was something uh, horrific. Um, now, you know, some of those details, which we don't need to go into, as they emerged, are just um, you know obviously sickening to kind of um, read about. You know, 
initially you had the the wave of kind of just killing festival goers and and a lot of this i don't think is jewish you know i can only speak for myself and you guys correct me but i don't think it's jewish specific i think in a bunch of you know ravers in the desert you know i i've i've been partying in the negev in the israeli desert um you know or but but you know anyone who's been to an australian doof or or whatever i mean you know any young person in the west can directionally relate to the surreal horror of a situation where you know a bunch of people with guns descend on you as you're partying you know like some of these guys these guys just imagine you're just trying to get laid and then like you know two days later you're stuck in a basement in gaza and everyone around you's like dead i mean it's just um like it's it's almost comically horrific um and um so look i guess there was that wave and then as some of the details of the tortures and the you know civilian you know things came out that's obviously a kind of special level of horror and again not jewish specific but i'll tell you what um you know what the, and so there's a certain level of radicalization with what what happened there but the real kind of um shock to me was that you know as these things happened over the weekend um and as the world was digesting what was going on this you know thousand plus um massacre of civilians and kidnapping on monday night in sydney you know there was a protest um against israel and for uh for hamas and for the for or certainly for the for the palestinians and this is you know you know Israel's been bombarding Gaza for like a fortnight now. So, you know, so people, you know, might not remember, but this is before there was any Israeli reaction, you know, to hundreds of people, at least maybe thousands um, in Sydney that night on, on that Monday that followed the massacre. The only information they had was that, you know, at least hundreds of civilians had been massacred and, um, they saw it as a as a righteous event and then you know that culminated in Jews being asked to leave the CBD of Sydney and folks chanting gas the Jews on the opera house and you know it's almost funny in its uh, absurdity and it's and it's kind of shocking in its obscenity and you know i if i wrote this you wouldn't have believed me. I wouldn't have believed it um, beforehand, but certainly for me, and I think for many Jews and non-Jews around the world, in Australia and around the world, that this was going on, you know, in response to a massacre of Jews, that's it. Like there can be no dealing with these people. The lines between good and evil are clear. Like, I mean, these people could just cut off my head and put on a stick and you know like it wouldn't be more more shocking and more barbaric so um uh yeah so, and so in response to that and and i, I don't know if, if if you're you're kind of getting to that you know i did write a piece um i wrote it for quadrant um and i, and I kind of shared it on my Substack for your listeners quadrant is a conservative australian um you know, a bunch of really old anglo dudes basically um uh, you know, magazine in 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 Australia, and and I and my piece, you know, it, it made me reflect. This, these, these circumstances, you know, were shocking and um, you know, and disappointing. And you know, I thought, geez, you know, this is happening in in Sydney. You know, the police are basically facilitating this and asking Jews to leave because they can't protect Jews. Um, what is my and what is the Jews' uh, 
position in in Sydney, like un- under these circumstances. Um, and you know, there was a follow up where there was a, there was a, a, a pro Israel, you know, a Jewish rally, and you know, Chris Minns and and other politicians kind of came there and basically apologized for what had happened. And Chris Minns powerfully said, you know, he doesn't want to live in a state. Um, where, where you know that that kind of thing happens, which um, frankly you know was appreciated, and and he was very articulate actually that evening. I was I was very surprised. Some some impressive speech writers or some thoughtful ones, and um, and uh, and look, and, and so and so I, I I reflected on, and as I wrote this piece, um, you know about Australia and 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 her Jews and and the history, which is um, which is you know which is interesting and um, and reflected you know mainly on. On Monash, which is which was the greatest general of World War One, happened to be Australian and also happened to be um, a Jew, and uh, and so just as a kind of you know, I was I was I was uh, you know a bit upset and you know just as a, as a meditation on the role of of, of Jews in in Australian society, and so um, so yeah. Well, I, I, you know, I was very shocked by by the footage on the the steps of the Sydney Opera House where where people were chanting "Gas the Jews." And I, I, you know, maybe I'm a little bit naive about these things, but but you know, does Australia have an anti-Semitism problem, or or perhaps the West in general? Because I always thought, you know, Australia was a place where people came to to sort of leave old vendettas behind. You know. Yeah. Look, I um. I'm really pro-Australia. I think, um, you know, I am, uh, you know, Australia took my family in and I could not have asked for a more um, prosperous um, and satisfying um, uh, life. And, you know, I'm Australian, obviously. You can tell by my accent. You know, whenever I go overseas, my values, you know, my my manners, you know, I'm Australian, obviously. I I don't want to, I know I've been speaking, you know, Maybe as as a Jew or whatever. Obviously, that's not inconsistent. Um, but you know, I'm I'm Australian, and um, but you know, I, I reflect on Australia a lot. Objectively, you know, I read about it just out of interest and whatever. And I think we are a deeply blessed country. Um, and I think you know, people in those ABC sorts that you kind of alluded to earlier, they get really annoyed when I say this, but. I think Australia might be like the least racist country in the world, and and um, you know, and if not the least, because you know that's like a big call. It's like it's 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 up there, um, and that's because these people don't understand the blood feuds that like Pakistanis and, and Indians have, or like that um, you know that Dagestanis have between all seventy clans, or or China. like um, or just like just or, being, or not 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 being Han Chinese in China. Exactly, like like I mean, there are some real issues and real ethnic tensions offshore and Australia you know you roll up and yeah Sydney side is gonna be a bit cold and they won't invite you to their barbecue and you know or whatever like you know but like whatever like you know people are people and you know there's um you know and I think you know I reflect on my career and, and my education and I've been totally surrounded by folks from all over my entire life whether from China or India or um you know, South Africa or, or wherever, like my, my entire career and life. And no one cares, like just no one cares. No one cares really that I'm Jewish. No one cares that I'm from Georgia. You know, I don't really care whether that bloke's from, you know, Cambodia or from Thailand or from China or from the Philippines or from the US or from Mexico or whatever. No one cares. And I think um, Australia is a, a deeply 
you know, non-racist place. That's my starting position. Um, is there anti-Semitism? Yes, um, obviously. Um, does it kind of permeate everything? No, I think that's rubbish. Um, you know, uh, um, you know, do have synagogues and Jewish schools fortified themselves over the decades against violent attack? Yes. Um, you know, but, you know, compared to France where they're like sandbags and machine guns, um, you know, you know, it, it's pretty good here. So um, I guess it's relative. I think Australia is relatively, um, relatively good on that front. Um, and I'm very pro Australia. Um, but look, I, I think, um, you know, obviously, you know, one thing this has radicalized me a little bit on is our immigration policy, which is another thing that will blow up your ABC. You know, I'm, I'm, um, uh, you know, constitutionally a big Australia person. You know, when I think what's the best thing that could be for Australia, it's not to kind of be stuck at 20 million people forever and kind of that's it. You know, I I am pro-people, I'm a pro-natalist, have kids, you know, create things, dream big. You know, I think in Australia, you know, Australia has, and I've written this, this essay, you know, I wrote an essay, one of my first essays that I wrote was a new Hong Kong in Australia. You know, this was during the Hong Kong crisis in 2019. And I said, you know, why don't we invite two, you know, millions of, of Hongkongese to build a new Hong Kong in Australia, whether it's Darwin, Newcastle, to, you know, wherever, obviously kind of work with the locals, whatever, but like, you know, these are educated, smart, English speaking folks. Why don't we build a new city you know there's you know god did not say thou shalt have five really two coastal cities on this enormous infinite coast with this enormous resource we are an energy and food and land superpower we could be doing a lot more so that's my position so i'm not and i'm an immigrant so i'm not inherently anti-immigrant obviously and i'm not um but um, I also don't think we should be importing Jew haters. Um, so whatever that looks like, I, I don't really know what that kind of means in practice. But, you know, John Howard um, said very astutely at the time, you know, um, we decide who comes to this country and the circumstances in which they come. And I've always believed that. I've always, um, you know, I, I've been a kind of a pro-immigration person, but I've never called an anti-immigration person racist for that i think you know every country has the right to decide their borders and control their borders and decide who comes and who doesn't and you know and and we can just debate the levels where whether it's zero or a lot both they're all legitimate and we can kind of decide that um and i guess one thing that i've been shocked looking around the world um you know and this isn't new this was kind of clear um, with the Charlie Hedbo massacre um, in France, you know, a decade ago and, and, and the kind of protests against um, uh, images of Muhammad across um, Europe um, around, around the same, around the same time. And previous to that, basically kind of, and all the kind of massacres of Jews in France over the last um, couple of decades, but increasingly across the Western world, including Australia, you know, I don't know what it means in practice, but, um, you know, certainly these kinds of protests in Sydney and elsewhere have um, sharpened my mind on that. Would you find strange that, that so many privileged, privileged white university students have jumped on the bandwagon in support of, of Palestine and, and, and Hamas, even though I, I think there's a, a pretty strong chance that most of them know very little about the historical background and nuances of the situation in, in Israel and Palestine. Like, I think we can't underestimate how lazy, how, how lazy some of these wokesters are. Is it simply a case of 
brown people versus white people in their eyes? Is I mean, is, does it boil down to that? Yeah, good question. I'm not sure. I, I guess, um, you know, uh, yeah, I, I, I think the prism in which they look at um, is this kind of power imbalance thing and also kind of um, American empire versus not um and so um and so you know through that lens um yeah and, and you kind of see with the way they bundle their other views you know these are the um you know they all kind of have the, the same view on um on you know uh indigenous sovereignty or or um or blm and the like it's all kind of bundled and i and i think that's because that's the axis they're looking at this is and inherently, you know, this is a worse off group, and so they're right, and they can do no wrong, and um, you know, we must just give, 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 and we must self-flagellate and self-flagellate and self-flagellate, and um, and we and we're bad, and so um, I, I think that's that's the undercurrent in terms of kind of how how this emerged. You know, yeah, it does stem from aspects of our media. You know, our universities um, have kind of um, been eat, eaten up, and then, and then, um, you know, in in the US, um, you know, there's been, you know, this is kind of a, a multi-decade kind of institutional government um, uh, uh, prerogative um, as well, which you know, Richard Hanani just wrote about in his good book, um, The Origins of Woke. Um, before we get too far away from the the uh, the the sort of the your personal recollections of of, the, of this event uh, that went on. I think I think you know I, I we're all uh, as I say we've all got kids on here and 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 you're a proud family man and I had the privilege of meeting some of your your kids at the at the, at the talk and um, as far as I know <laughs> literally all of them and I love that you're getting them started early on free speech which is good that they can see work um, but I, I just wanted to know what it was like to go through that week with kids yeah look um i don't know how you've been since you've had kids since i've had kids i can't even i can't watch a movie where a kid gets kidnapped or something like it is is i'm totally like i, I get angry i'm like why did you make me watch this movie there's a child that gets hurt i'm out like it's just um it, it's just you know again this isn't a jew thing or whatever just any kid just um just totally uh, makes me sick basically when something bad happens to them um and yeah look you, you can't um you can't stare into it too much you know um is the truth or and, and that you know and i acknowledge you know right now you know gaza's been bombed the shit out of over the last few weeks and you know um a lot of innocent people um well civilians ha have died and a lot of um uh, Palestinian children have died and you see images of them in hospital and, and that, you know, the image of a child in a hospital covered in dust with a wound, irrespective of where they're from, you know, is just absolutely shattering. Um, and so I think, you know, the honest answer is wherever you're from and whoever you are staring into kind of like that kind of bleak situation, you can't think about it too much. Yeah, you know, I don't want to be too callous, but you know, when the when um you know the Allies were fighting the Germans or the Japanese and they were firebombing the cities of um Japan or Dresden or Hamburg, um, you know, you know, or they nuked, you know, um Nagasaki and Hiroshima, um, you know, like 
civilians died and, and children um, died, and that's equally horrific as if, you know, um, kids um, died, um, you know, in 9-11 or, or wherever. So, um, so yes, I, I, my, my very banal answer to you, to be honest, is that all this stuff's um, hard to, to kind of um, swallow as, as a parent and it's impossible to look too deeply into because any single one of those images or stories is just totally harrowing. Well, I, 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 I don't really see a, a sort of an argument for no action from, from, from the Israeli side, you know. I mean, the, the, I mean that was a pretty big attack, uh, a terrorist attack. I mean, they, they surely... Palestinians and Hamas would would have foreseen a retaliation of some sort after this. You know, I mean, what what else could Israel do? Yeah. So look, um, you know, I think action for its sake is the wrong answer. And so, um, you know, uh, you know, U.S. just striking out of the Middle East out of bloodlust was the wrong answer um, with kind of Iraq and, and, and Afghanistan. And so that would be the wrong answer here. I think you know, we're sitting pretty far away. I'm not really privy to military um, strategy and like I can kind of postulate, um, uh, you know, I think going in so you know the facts are that there are hundreds of um you know at least a couple hundred as i understand still hostages um in gaza so kind of in in terms of like actionable things it's get them out or at least you know at least have them all accounted for um two is you know dismantle um the terror organization that you know rules hamas and that the rules Gaza, which is Hamas, obviously, and that kind of um, you know perpetrated this um, this action. Those seem to me like um, de minimis. Like that's all you could possibly, at the very least, you know, asking for their um, destruction and the re- return of the hostages. You know, I don't understand why there should be a single ceasefire or a pause. You know, and I'm acknowledging, um, you know, uh, uh, you know. Palestinian civilian deaths, and you know, obviously they should be minimised where possible. I I don't know where thousands of bombs uh, are dropping, um, but obviously Palestinian civilian deaths should be minimised. But obviously, the Israeli government number one objective is to return its hostages, which are still being held in Gaza, and to dismember the organisation that massacred, you know, one and a half thousand of its. Um, Civilians. I don't think the Allies were, um, you know, clutching their per- you know pearls too much around um, you know, Hiroshima and Nagasaki and, and the like. I mean, you know, I think people can still debate that potentially, um, and, and some of the fire bombings of, of of Germany. But I think you know, total defeat in in Germany and Japan yielded actually pretty great outcomes for the West. You had kind of the staunchest Western allies and recovered economies um, in those places in, in the decades that followed World War II. So, um, you know, that's probably the, the lens that I see it, not to minimise Palestinian civilian deaths and, and, and supporting the minimisation um, of, those, of those deaths. But absolutely, you know, Israel has every right um, to, to, to go in and recover its uh, hostages and to attack Hamas. I don't know if this is too, me being too terminally online, but I, I must say I, I'm so f- confused at this this footage we see on on X of uh, mm, pro Palestinian people tearing down, kidnap, 
uh, uh, posters of the oh, and and they're smiling and cackling and laughing in the most frightening way. Um, and I have to, you know, maybe pair that with some of the 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 represent always female representatives usually on like Piers Morgan and stuff of of the pro Palestinian cause. I must say, dreadful PR. Like whoever's handling the PR for all this is is doing a very bad job. They come across as um, they come across badly, and they had and up until two minutes ago, and this is me just for a total outsider. Up until two minutes ago, I think they had the like like uh, they had won over the moral authority of the entire Western world. In a, I mean, that's my read on it. Like like you could go into any elite institution two minutes ago and go and wear the wear the flags, say genocide, say Nazi, say whatever you like, and um, get away with it. And and so with all of that, they're going on TV and they're saying. That I've, there's one. That, I mean, I know I shouldn't talk about Piers Morgan's silly show. However, um, he there's a chick on there who won't even talk to to a um, uh, someone on the other side. Like they're in the same room, and she's like, "I won't speak to a genocide denier," and she has to speak to Piers, and then he has to reiterate the question. It's it's really. I mean, what do you think of all this stuff? Well, I, I just see. Um, you know, I haven't seen the specific interview you're talking about, but generally, you know, I think it, it's an extension of that night following the massacre, where in the in the you know couple of days after the massacre, before there was any Israeli response, there were masses of crowds across the world, and you know, near, near me in Sydney, supporting the Palestinians against Israel with the only piece of information that one and a half thousand Jews, Jewish civilians, had been massacred. Everything you need to know is in that moment. And so seeing folks tearing down kidnap posters, seeing um, all sorts of deranged accusations of genocide, like, I don't know, like, you can just say lots of civilian, you know, ex- or excess civilian, if you think, you know, excess civilian deaths are happening, you can say that. That doesn't equal genocide. Like, I mean, the kind of language inflation and the hyperbole here is, is like, ridiculous. Like, these people are, um, you know, understandably, you know, they're, um, you know, they they might be affected by um, you know deaths going on overseas, but you know you certainly didn't see this when six hundred thousand Syrians died, or, you know, or um, you know, this is a very anti-Jewish, anti-Western moment, and so nothing really is going to surprise me um, since the days after the massacre, people were out there against the Jews. But the guys from the I can't, I just can't stop thinking about this because I've watched all the. Awful videos. Every single monstrous video from this attack, I've seen them all. You know, I watched them all. So the guys, without going into any detail, the guys who pulled off that attack, would you really want to associate with those guys? Like, if they, if they were, re- even if they were on your team, like, like fully on your team, like they, come you would have thought so. But there are professors, you know, and they're 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 imam. There was an imam in Australia who was saying he was elated. That was his language, elated. Those, but the, but the, but, that, but that's like. But if I just want to show them the video and say that guy, and point to a, one of the guys and say, do you want to hang out with that guy? Would he? Would you break bread with him? Like, would you? He's just done what he's done, and people can watch the videos, and it's the the worst stuff I've ever seen. Like, pretty, well, almost pretty pretty close too, <laughs> and no, it's pretty it's pretty bad. And and I'm just fascinated that on that that. From the, as I say, look, I'm still working my way through this whole massive thing, but just on a human level, those guys come across as, well, a total pussies 
because there didn't seem to be many soldiers around like that they were fighting against. Like, like they, I was like, where are the soldiers you guys are trying to get? Like, there didn't seem to be any of those around, but mainly, um, you know, women and children and um, teens and stuff with glow sticks. And um, and, and they also come across, yeah, as, as um, total psychos. Like total psycho. It's super black and white. You're going in there, you're massacring unarmed men, women, children, in in many instances, in their homes, raping, torturing children. Um, I I mean, maximum evil stuff. And then you have Imam in Sydney saying he's elated. You have professors around the world saying this is a moment of resistance. So it's a mask off moment. You can be with them or, you know... Or not with them. I mean, I, I, I actually find the moral clarity totally, um, you know, um, not, not reassuring. I just find that, you know, finally there's no pretending they just want dead dead Jews. And, and look, you know, I think you can, you know, there is obviously, you know, well, there is a case to be made against bombing Gaza in the way that it's happening. And I, I, I'm respectful of, of, of that. Um, but, um, you know, when you're out there, protesting Israel um, after the massacre of its civilians. Um, I mean, there's something deeply fundamentally broken with your worldview. Mm. Well, we're we're a little mindful of time here, and we we really wanted to chat about the voice uh, for for sort of the, the tail end of our interview here. And and you wrote a, a great piece on the Indigenous voice to Parliament recently, which which I'd I'd love to get into. But as sort of as an entry point, I'd like to know your thoughts on on the voice referendum as a whole and 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 its downfall. Um, you know, what, what what's your assessment of 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 the whole thing? Well, look, I, I think everyone wants to project their own uh, views on on, on on the outcome. I, I think the starting point is that it's like basically impossible to pass a referendum if it's not bipartisan is the truth. I'd like to say that, um, you know, I, I, I was very, I was very early vocal, uh, you know, and people give me credit because I think it's due. I was very against The Voice very early on. Um, I've got strong views on on the voice um and you know i was i was glad that that it failed um in the end um but you know i think ultimately um it it failed for those reasons but also you know if it were bipartisan i think there's still a fair chance it would have failed for those reasons is the way i'd put it but the landslide failure is just because the yes campaign you know just didn't have a chance basically from from the start uh, just for our overseas listeners, very quickly, uh, we had a referendum. Everyone went and voted on this thing, like the whole country. It was basically about giving uh, the Indigenous population recognition, constitutional recognition uh, via something called a voice to parliament, which is was going to be a group of unelected people uh, in Canberra who were going to, uh, allowed to, uh, Indigenous people presumably, uh, who were going to weigh in uh, on specific Indigenous matters and it was a yes or no case so that's just a little bracketed thing for people listening overseas well you you write in 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 that piece uh, and this is a quote indigenous australians don't suffer from the lack of a voice or voices but a lack of solutions to the cycle of fatherlessness domestic violence substance abuse and poor education that grips certain communities what one thing that i i, I think you could I add think i was to quoting that john anderson there by the way I, I don't think i said that i was quoting um John Anderson, I thought articulated that that nicely, but but yeah, obviously I, I support that quote. But just for okay, I, I don't want to claim to, 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 <laughs> very to, to good, his very words. Good. Mm. 
Mm. No, good, good, good cl- clarification there. But but one thing I think w- we could add to that list is that there needs to be a solution to the isolation of Indigenous communities. I mean, if you live a four-hour drive from a hospital, uh, you know, overall your community's health will be affected negatively. You know, also the remoteness of a lot of Indigenous communities means that it's hard to find services and businesses that are willing to set up shop out there, which in turn affects job prospects. Like, oh, you know... It's way simpler. Like... We, as a, you know, we have, we are in this moment of the last 200 years following the Industrial Revolution, roughly, you know, we are in this hyperbolic growth phase that has never basically previously existed. As a civilization, we do not know how to create wealth in the desert, like independent of cities. You know, the Australian model of wealth is summarized very nicely. We have, um, Big cities on the coast, which means that there's shipping lanes. Um, it means we have agglomeration effects, you know, within cities. People can trade and study and have access to hospitals, and there's infrastructure that can be kind of economically uh, set up for for dense communities. You know, look at anywhere in the world. That is the only model of wealth creation that we know of. Like, I, I, I wish it were different. I wish I could live in. Alice Springs and be a gazillionaire from doing whatever. We just don't know how to do that. You know, hopefully one day we, we will. Today we don't. And so, um, there's, you know, if you want to live in a regional community with a thousand people or 50 people or whatever, like you're just not going to have the, um, the amenities that civilization can provide um, because we just can't do that. We don't know how to do that. All the will and all the money in the world is not going to change that. And so that is a fundamental problem at the heart of um, you know a, a, a lot of these issues. But but we're also led to led to believe that Aborigines in in cities suffer the same disadvantages as those in remote communities. But it's, you know it's simply not the case. And I think that's a, that's another reason why the voice seems so. Uh, or you know, it seems so ridiculous. Is because you, it's going to be set up to have elite Aboriginal coastal Australians that are weighing in on issues that, uh, first of all, issues that 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 across the board affect Indigenous Australians, but also those out in remote communities. It just seems so silly to me. Well, look, you know, everything about it on its face is obscene. You know, setting up a race committee into our constitution as a kind of solution to anything um, is, you know, it's obviously a non sequitur. Like it's obviously jobs for the boys. It's, you know, uh, Megan Davis or whoever the other kind of voice proponents are, they're going to be sitting on this cushy thing with this bureaucracy, with this this funding mechanism and kind of pronouncing these edicts and having this incremental uh, political clout. And how is that going to kind of improve... um, the lives of, um, you know, Aboriginal Australians who aren't doing so well, whether, you know, in the cities or or in the bush, well, it's obviously not. And we know it's not because we've had um, national committees that weren't in the constitution before that didn't didn't work, okay? And, and, you know, in that same piece, I quoted John Anderson as well, kind of noting the thousands of organisations that basically already exist to kind of provide those kinds of um, services. And so so my, you know, my piece for for your listeners was called something like Zionism for Aboriginal Australians, Um, uh, you know, because 
um, you know, I kind of, I kind of point all these things out that obviously the voice is not going to meet any of the nominal objectives it's trying to um, set up, and and, and everything that it's sold for to kind of improve the lot of Aboriginal is obviously total rubbish and kind of putting this race committee into our constitution is on its face an obscenity you know i, I you know we have a colorblind constitution and that's you know like i'm i'm like a, you know i read my my latest piece you know um you know that that was kind of um, um uh, martin luther king's vision this kind of colorblind society and so i i kind of uh that you know, I've got the views of a, a radical black um, activist from the '60s, a '90s boar, and a '2020s you know right wing firebrand. Like it's just, um, it, you know, it wasn't that controversial that long ago that we don't want to kind of um, uh, specify it for race. And so I guess you know, and so all those points, to be fair, had already been made before by other folks pretty well. And so, yeah, maybe I'd made it earlier or whatever, but I didn't think writing an article about that was that interesting anymore because, you know, three weeks before the referendum, other folks had already, you know, the kind of full engine of the Liberal Party and um, and other kind of no campaigners had been kind of set into motion. And a lot of these talking points, I joke that I wrote those talking points, um, but obviously I, I didn't. I, I had no influence, by the way. I'm, I'm just, it just happened to coincide with 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 their talking points but um yeah that all been underway and so my contribution was really writing about well if it's if the voice isn't about improving a lot of uh, you know aboriginal australians what is it really about and it's kind of about sovereignty and and they're open about it and a lot of people argued about the treaty and this was a path to treaty and the like during the campaign and i think they're right i think it is a path to those things as as the proponents said you know, publicly stated often enough. And actually, I take the view that, you know, as a Jew and as a Zionist, aspirations to sovereignty are actually admirable. And so I don't say that as a, as a um, you know, in scare quotes or, or whatever. And so I guess in my, my piece is really, well, if it really is about that, let's take that seriously. What would that look like? And so, you know, I won't repeat the 4,000 words or whatever it is here, but it's basically taking that what I consider to be a legitimate aspiration to nationhood and going, hang on, even framing it that way is really weird. No one talks about an Aboriginal you know, nation except in like the most ridiculous terms of like, you know, calling Sydney Gadigal or, you know, Nam in Melbourne or whatever. But like, you know, no one talks about a serious nation. Let's go build a nation that we will call our own and we will actually have the accountability and the responsibility of, of self-governance and self-determination, which is hard and, and it's admirable, you know, and, you know, it's good if you can get it and it's tough, um, but no one's even talking in those terms. Like the Yes campaign is only talking in the most, um, in the most uh, you know, they just want sinecures. They want a race committee and they want to kind of leech off um, what's kind of already existing and, and you know, no, um, that's a bad idea. But if you do want nationhood, you know, maybe the Australian people support it or not in some sliver of country somewhere, you know, maybe, maybe not, um, you know, but no one's even asking for it. And my take is that the fact that they're not even asking for actual sovereignty and nationhood is deeply pessimistic. Um, you know, they don't want it or they don't think they can, you know, can, get it or, or whatever. And so I kind of explore it in that vein. 
Well, you provide a fascinating map in the article from the National uh, Native Title Tribunal, which shows the current state of land claims in Australia. This was worth the price of admission alone, okay? I had no idea that 54% of the entire country is now claimed uh, and that 27% exclusively, as, as you say in the article uh, of that, is, is also claimed. Uh, I'm, I'm so embarrassed that I didn't know any of this. Now, I have no sophisticated view on the matter really, um, but I feel like we spend our time in, these, in, this, in this space in, of Indigenous issues talking about, you know, I don't know, sideshows and symbols and all sorts of stuff. But this seems more important. Like that, that graph is, they should, I feel like they should show that in high school. Like, like, you know, that should be one thing they should show it and go, okay, well, this is the map. This is how, as it currently stands. And, and don't apply any morals to it or any, any view on it. Maybe you just go, this is it. Like, this is the decision that was made by the high court. And this is, this is, this is um where we're at. I mean, what do you, what do you think? Uh, uh, can you elaborate a bit more? Isha? I write in the piece that exactly what you just said. And I also note that if you showed this to most Australians, they never would have seen it, you know. And, you know, in in the Marbo case in the early 90s, the High Court partitioned more land mass than any other court in history. Um, it is a shocking kind of piece of judicial um activism basically kind of um imagining these uh these kind of legal rights that kind of survived um settlement now if australians together came together and decided that we want to deliver you know certain land rights and or exclusivity or portions of australian land i'm i think it's a totally legitimate conversation i'm not even against it in in principle um, I am against the High Court doing it, kind of bypassing, um, bypassing um, kind of the common will. And I think it's um, deeply subversive that this is kind of, you know, as you note, fifty-four percent, like majority. That's not exclusive. So, but fifty-four percent has been basically granted some form of rights, or, or inalienable rights, effectively, or over land, and and, and it's totally shocking um and i think you know the fact that that's missing from a conversation around the voice and sovereignty is totally schizophrenic and delusional like we should like that's obviously the elephant in the room you know if we are talking about sovereignty and we are talking about partitioning land why have we just totally ignored um native native title um and so and and you know not many have kind of connected connected the dots there and so um yeah i, I mean i yeah I, I think i think certainly australians i've shared with it a shock but certainly offshore for you know folks offshore reacted strongly to it as well they they obviously had no idea yes well i think that this i just thought it was a, a real testament to your to your writing uh, that you that you put this in and you know and and identified that um this isn't this is the, not the conversation we're having and but and it just felt like that the whole debate should have been about should have been really robust it wasn't robust it was um it was really i mean look i understand where that where where the emotions come from but it was highly emotive it was there was a lot of weeping on tv from leaders and like this is you know when really when you look at the all the numbers of like you know of disadvantage and the native title maybe that's what we need we needed more you know serious 
But you can't even you couldn't even have this discussion. Imagine on the ABC during the referendum time, someone putting up that map that you you had in your article. Imagine yeah, someone putting exactly. it up. Exactly. Again, implosion of that building in Ultimo. And it's odd. You know, you just Google it. It's off the government website. This isn't like conspiracy.com or, or, or But they'd be whatever. saying, like, I mean, if you showed it though, they'd go, oh, um, why are you showing this? What's, what, yeah, what's, your, you showing motive? But, what's your motive? What's your motive? That's the framing. But, you know, I resent the terms of the conversation during The Voice. As you note, it was all emotional blackmail you know don't ask too many questions don't ask how this will help don't ask how it will work it was all this is what they've asked and it's the least we could do it's like hang on we have you know one of the most enduring democracies and constitutions in the world um you know and we're just gonna just you know for the for the for the heck of it just kind of change it because a group you know interest group asked it i mean all the arguments were so disingenuous and often like evil like i mean i think kind of racial segregation that way is so antithetical to the australian character and yet like um perversely they're kind of draped in the language of self-righteousness and um and kind of moral righteousness and moral superiority and so the whole conversation all the guilt that that, that surrounded it it just it, it honestly it made me sick Yes, well, um, you know, I think that I'm no pollster, but the early polls were were so high that I think that that to me, I read that as being proof of what you said earlier about Australia being non-racist. I, I see that as as a proof uh, of a kind of attitude amongst most Australians, seventy percent of us or whatever, who were saying, "Yeah, this is this is bullshit. We want yeah, it's time to solve the problem. It's time to solve." This problem, and then once the, the, the people started to say more about what they want, you know, how they wanted to go about it, or whatever, I was like, yeah. Well, I, I couldn't agree more, and, and you know, hopefully, I've said enough. You know, the extent to which I sympathise, you know, with, for example, aspirations to to, to sovereignty. I, I'm, I think Australians have tremendous goodwill and want to do the right thing by Aboriginal Australians. You know, I think you know, they were here first. You know, there are a whole bunch of horrible things, um, you know, happened to them and, and, and were, um, and so, you know, I think Australians, you know, want to do the right thing. You know, this isn't kind of bury head, head in the stand. This isn't, you know, smack the, them away. Um, this is, this, you know, the, the voice was a bad proposition to benefit a few and, um, you know, and, and it wasn't going to help Aboriginal Australians and so Australians rejected it. But I think underlying all that there is tremendous goodwill and empathy towards aboriginal australians and rightly so couldn't agree with that more well i've sort of run out of time which i think we could talk uh endlessly about a lot of different things but um i think we've hopefully given people a good uh sampler of of your wonderful Substack, uh and they should definitely read that that piece that we just that we just dipped into at the end there zionism for aboriginal australians on kvetch it's uh, it's fantastic. You, I can honestly say people won't have read anything in the mainstream uh, Australian press like it at all. Not not in any of the newspapers. Not on the ABC. Nothing as provocative or you know a, a, as interesting as, as this. I can guarantee that. It, it covers all sorts like conquistadors and the dating market and. Uh, Barbie and, gets a review uh, on on the Substack also. Yeah, read, read the Barbie review. So, uh, yeah, no, but look, I, I appreciate it. And, uh, and if, if you enjoy reading it, I appreciate that. Well, Misha, we do have a final question we ask all of our guests, and we'd like to know what you're reading right now. 
I am. Uh, I just finished uh, reading *The Jewish State* by Theodor Herzl, the kind of mon- the first kind of domino in written in the 1890s, I think, bef- you know, founding of the Jewish state. And now I'm, I'm, I've been a massive Australian binge. So for the last six months, I've been reading Australian history because I realized I knew nothing about it. And so I can actually, you know, now I've read quite a bit. And so I'm reading *Commonwealth of Thieves*. Um, Keneally. By yeah, Thomas Keneally. I, I've read, I, have I read that one? I've read one of them. Maybe. Yeah, that, that's the one. So, and, and look, it's early days. I'm enjoying it. Like, there, there's some of these books are mixed. Some of them are fantastic. And you know, um, you know, I, I've really, you know, I, I, like um, Robert Hughes. Um, the name's escaping. Fatal Shaw. Yes, the Fatal Shaw. I only famously. know that because you mentioned it in your article, and then I was like, "What's that book?" And then I, oh, and it's I looked so it up. good. You know, books by Jeffrey uh, Blaney have been good. Um, uh, you know why Australia prospered by Ian McLean is fantastic. I read that a couple of times. Um, so there, there's some really good books. I'm gonna I'm gonna write a long kind of Australian history piece at, at some point, which this is all working up towards. Well, I can definitely uh, recommend uh, the Jeffrey Blaney book as well, which I think I let you, John. I'm I've not got sure it. It's on my are. desk. I will read it and I will return it to you. Thank you for the reminder on air. Nice. Well, gents, I really appreciate you, you having me on. This has been a lot of fun. And um, and thanks for reading Kvetch. And I look forward to continuing to listen to your podcast. Thanks, Misha. Cheers, gents. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the New Flesh Podcast. If you like our work, please consider rating us on Apple Podcasts or even writing us a review. It really does help the show reach a wider audience. We'll be back with another episode next week. Until then, long live the New Flesh.